Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Good luck. Ah, good luck. Luck is where opportunity meets ability. That has nothing to do with what we're about to do here. (laughs) Happy Easter and good morning. I was uh, given a, a note I read last week. It simply said this, after a little while, the world will behold me no more. But you shall behold me. Because I live, you shall live also. Sign Jesus. You know, it's in Matthew 28, you have the record. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to draw toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, And the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake shook. And it occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. I like this part. And sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning. His garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, and they became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that they tell everyone else. I remember when I uh, was a little kid, I learned a prayer. And later it made me wonder why my parents would have me memorize and pray this prayer every night. I was just a little guy. Some of you recognize the prayer because your folks forced you to pray it too. (laughs) Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. What a horrible thought (laughs) to put in the mind of a kid just before he goes to sleep. I mean, no wonder I had so many nightmares. But, but I, I don't hate my parents. There are sinners like everyone else. But it did bring up a good question. If I should die before I wake, do I have a soul that can escape? Victor Hugo, that great playwright, Known for Les Miserables, he also wrote this. The tomb is not a blind alley. It is a thoroughfare. It closes on the twilight, and it opens on the dawn. Could it be true? Or is this only a wishful thought of a a, a poet? Job, oldest book in the Bible. He was the one who asked the question, if a man dies, 
If a man dies, will he rise again? Will he live again? Is there life after death? I want to know from where does the question come? Who came up even with wondering? I mean, the sense of life beyond this body is just an idea that's, that's within every one of us. The concept of cessation of existence just doesn't sit well with our soul. Why would I be motivated to do anything if I really question that, like I said last week, you live, you die, it puts you in a hole. Flower grows, cow comes along, eats the flower, we kill the cow, we eat the cow, we live, we die, they put us in the hole. The flower grows, the cow eats the flower, we eat the cow, we live, we die, they put us in a hole. And you just wonder again and again, if that's all there is, why do you get up in the morning? Why do you go through bad days? Why, why would I even ask the question? And here's the thing. To say that nothing beyond the grave, that there's no life, think about this. That to say that there's nothing beyond the grave is a statement of faith with no evidence. Go to your universities. Any of your debates, because I know I've been there. And there's such confidence in the fact that you are an idiot if you believe there's life on the death. But turn it around. To say there is no life after death. You do understand, it's not a statement of science, it's a statement of faith. But it's a statement of faith with absolutely no evidence. So we're said that after death there's nothing to fear. Yeah, and there's nothing to hope. And there's no reason to be motivated to do anything now. Others tell us that we slip as a dewdrop into a vast impersonal sea of consciousness. Others tell us that we will experience thousands and thousands of transmigrations or reincarnations until we're released from this cycle of birth and death. But it was Jesus. He was the one who said that night before he's crucified, you don't blow smoke when you know you're in four hours you're going to be arrested. In 12 hours you're going to be tortured and crucified. It's a little bit of a serious time, serious discussion. And the disciples, they all think Jesus was going to blow up Rome and set up a little kingdom, and they would be the big dogs. And when he starts saying that, no, Gentiles will put me to death, but I will rise again. It's like they never believed or heard that last part. And so they're all depressed. So he's there the night before he's going to be crucified with a bunch of depressed guys. It was in that context in the Gospel of John. I witnessed. John was there. He heard it, writes it down in John 14 and says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place. A place. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself 
so that where I am, you'll be also. And then he said in verse 6, For I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And then he says in verses 18 and 19, Don't worry, I'm not going to leave you like orphans. For there's for a little time I'm going to be gone. And the world's going to believe I'm gone. But you will know I'm very much alive. Because I live, you are going to live also. That's what Jesus said. The late Paul Little once wrote, If Christ did not rise from the dead, Christianity is an interesting museum piece, but nothing more. It has no objective validity or reality, though it is a nice wishful thought. It certainly isn't worth getting all steamed up about. The martyrs who went singing to the lions and the contemporary missionaries who have given their lives in Ecuador and the Congo while taking this message to others have been poor, deluded fools if Christ was not raised from the dead. Now whether I, you, believe any of this stuff, I just think I would like to begin my search with this guy. Because there's no other guy. This is the guy that least claims. And people claim that he beat death. So the question is, why would people believe that he actually beat death? So I would like to hear what he has to say. The historian professor Thomas Arnold of Oxford University, author of the classic three-volume work, The History of Rome, if you're ever going to get your Ph.D. in history, you've got to read his classic. And he wrote this. I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. And then there's Paul Mayer, past professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University. Here's what he wrote. Accordingly, if all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable, according to the canons of historical research, to conclude that the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, in which Jesus was buried, was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter. And no shred of evidence has yet been discovered that would disprove this statement. End of quote. Most any history book, will give you a somewhat sympathetic version of the life of Jesus. And then it will end with some variation of um, he was crucified by Pontius Pilate and died as a result. But it's what happened after that and how it's recorded in history. Do dead men rise? You say, but all we have is the Bible. 
And isn't that not circular reasoning that, of course, we believe the Bible because the Bible says he rose from the dead and we believe it's the word of God. And So the only evidence we have is what's in the Bible. Oh, is that so? Hmm. Are you saying there's evidence outside the Bible? Oh, dear me, would I say that. Let's start with the Jewish sources. May I introduce to you some of these outside the Bible evidences for the resurrection of your Lord Jesus Christ? None of the Jewish sources, I say it again, none of the Jewish sources deny the fact that the tomb was empty on that first Easter morning. Not one. But rather, they try to explain how it became empty. Now, if you're trying to explain how something becomes empty, you are admitting what? That it's empty. While even many today are busying themselves trying to explain away the empty tomb, there were other ancient Jewish leaders who were haunted by the reality of it. Ask any of your Jewish friends, and they know of Rabbi Ben Ezra, one of the greatest of all the rabbis. He was around the 12th century A.D. And as he pondered this evidence and history and this Yeshua, here's what he prayed. Thou, if thou wast he who at midnight came by the starlight naming a dubious name, and if too heavy with sleep and too rash with fear, O thou, if that martyr gash fell on thee, coming to take your own, and we gave the cross when you deserved the throne, be thou the judge. There were very, very brilliant Jewish leaders that were haunted by this. Then you have the Roman sources. Provincial governors throughout the Roman Empire had to submit an annual report to the emperor. It was called the Acta. The historian Justin Martyr mentions that Pilate, who was a provincial governor of Jerusalem at the time, spoke of the case of Jesus in his report, in his Acta, to the emperor Tiberius. Now, is there any evidence of this? Well, that little barbecue that Nero pulled off in Rome in 8964 pretty well burned up most of the evidence and information of anything. But a piece of marble, 15 inches by 24 inches, was found in Nazareth, dated from that period of time with the inscription. It's an edict from Rome against grave robbery. Let me read it to you. Ordinance of Caesar. It is my pleasure that graves and tombs remain perpetually undisturbed. If, however, anyone charges that another has either demolished them or has any way extracted the buried or has maliciously transferred to other places in case of violation, I desire that the offender be sentenced to death on charge of violation of sepulcher. Now what's interesting about this is all previous laws about alleged robbery, uh, robbery leveled only a fine. 
Now, why all of a sudden, at this time, that fine is stiffened to the penalty of death? And then why would this piece of marble, this edict, be found 3,000 miles away from Rome, specifically in Palestine? And not just Palestine, why would it be found in Nazareth? Now, what was Jesus, who was Jesus known as 3,000 miles away in Rome? He was known as Jesus the Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth. So here's the question. What was so irritating Rome 3,000 miles away? Something to do with an empty tomb and alleged grave robbery. Why was it being such a big deal? Remember we talked last week about Tacitus. In the year 8064, he talked about Christians were willingly giving their lives up in the arena to lions and death because of their strong belief. And they were talking all about what? The empty tomb. The resurrected Jesus Christ. So what happened on that Sunday? Where did Christianity begin? It began in Malibu. Southern California, right? All weird things come from California. No, it was, it came Palestine, specifically Jerusalem. Now, would you believe that Jerusalem is a rather Jewish city? Oh, come on, wake up. Of course you would. Now, therefore, this would be the last place on earth Christianity could have been birthed if that tomb was not what? Empty. That first Easter morning. Anyone, anyone producing a corpse would have driven a stake right through the heart of the faith inflamed with this empty tomb supposed resurrection. The repeated attempts of the critics to give an explanation how that tomb became empty on that first Easter morning is a declaration of the fact that it was. Flavius Josephus of the first century, a uh, uh, Roman general, Jewish gentleman, historian of that time, known because of his Antiquities of the Jews, which gives the history of this particular period of time. And his antagonism towards Messiah wannabes was well known because through his writings he would expose these false Christs, false messiahs, false messiahs. Well, Professor Shlomo Pines of Hebrew University announced some time ago the finding of an ancient Arabic manuscript of the account of Josephus. And here's what it read. His disciples reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, Josephus. Now here's the point. With all the facts of a very careful historian living at that time, and he has all the facts available to his disposal as to where the body was buried, where the grave was, and yet Josephus does not even attempt to deny that that tomb was empty on that first Easter morning. But rather, what does he say? Perhaps he was the Messiah. Other evidence? 
But well into the second century, authorities continued to admit an empty tomb by saying that the body must have been stolen. In an ancient writing called Dialogue with Trifo, this is in AD 150, it recorded that Jewish authorities were sent to Rome to counter this Christian claim that like Tacitus said, these Christians were running around speaking and giving their lives for this resurrected Jesus Christ. But they were armed only with one explanation. Not that they found the body or that the tomb was occupied, but the tomb was unoccupied, but the only th explanation they could give is that the body was what? Stolen. An early compilation of Jewish traditions called the Toledoth Jeshu talks about that somehow the body must have been stolen. Fourth century Jewish historian Josephon, he says somehow the body must have been stolen. The Talmud itself, a lot of people don't know this, the Talmud, which is one of the sacred writings of our Jewish friends, all, they all attempt to explain an empty tomb. So what about these explanations for that tomb being empty? Well, some say the, apostle, the apostles possibly invented the whole story. They hallucinated the thing. They got so drummed up, excited in the emotion, they just ran with it. Well, if that's true, then I have just one question. Why did somebody just produce the body? Why did somebody who, the guards were there, the authorities placed the guards there, the body was buried there, it's not some like 100 miles away. It was right out of the side the walls there in Jerusalem. Why didn't somebody, when these Christians were running around talking about a resurrected Jesus, why didn't somebody just simply take the corpse, dig it up, and throw it in the middle of the street? Never happened. But rather the best explanation they had was what? Somebody must have stole the body. Some say possibly they were confused. And they went to the wrong tomb well I guess that's possible but who would be able to correct that real quickly and going no 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 the tombs right there could have been the authorities or the guards themselves or even the witnesses who observed the body being buried but not a word in history but rather the explanation of somebody must have stolen the body for the tomb is empty Others say that Jesus, in a weakened state, he fainted. He was drugged. So he never really died. He, he was revived again and mistaken that he rose from the dead. Well, after being tortured, crucified, sealed three days in a tomb, without medical care, without food, Without air, he somehow moves a two-ton stone and in a beaten, bruised body declares himself the resurrected Christ. Well, if that's what resurrection would look like, I'd want to stay dead, wouldn't you? You really want to go there? Well, the oldest theory, of course, is I've mentioned again and again, and that is someone stole the body and the disciples would be the first be accused of it. Of course, that brings up the question. In any kind of a crime, you have a, a method, and then you have the motive. 
So what would be the method they would use? These disciples, they want to, uh, what, save face, whatever it might be. So they're going to go up against some Roman soldiers, stratiates, who, by the way, have been trained to protect their particular area and motivated that if they failed at their post, they would be put to death. So these are motivated professional soldiers of Rome. And just to make it really serious, they put the Roman seal on the tomb. And then they'd have these two big leather straps. And then they'd put the clay on the other side and then seal it in the middle. Anybody moving that stone would crack, break the seal. That was a slap in the face to Rome. And anybody caught doing that, they might as well start digging their grave right now. So those disciples are going to go up against these highly motivated, supported soldiers, trained. And so how are they going to do it? What's their method? Are they going to be, oh, well, let's take our fish nets and we'll throw our fish nets over them. Let's, let's hit them behind the back of the face with a mackerel. In other words, think of just physically, how would they overtake? Not just that, but what then is their motive? Why would they continue to permit themselves to be beaten, arrested, tortured, sacrificed to perpetrate what they knew was a lie because they had stolen the body? There was a newspaper article written some time ago that probed that thought, I thought, very well. And just listen to what he says. It is still a good question. Men may lie when it suits their convenience. But will they cheerfully sacrifice their lives as countless early Christians did in order to perpetrate what they know to be a hoax? He goes on, would you? However incredible it may seem in terms of what we know or think we know about the finality of human death, the story of the resurrection is powerfully authenticated by the willingness of its witnesses, its eyewitnesses, to die rather than repudiate the truth of their testimonies. Not one, not one of the apostles, eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ, ever changed their testimony, but every single one was martyred and sealed their testimony with their own death. If they were the ones who stole the body and knew the whole thing was a hoax, would you expect all of them to die for what they knew that was not true but made up? Every single one. Interesting, a Russian lecturer, member of the Communist Party back then, he was addressing a packed audience on the subject of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and, and he spoke for apparently a considerable length of time attempting to discredit the whole thing. At the end, an Orthodox priest rose and, and asked if he might reply. But he was warned. He'd only have five seconds. Five seconds is all I shall need, was his reply. So he turned to the people and he gave the common Christmas greeting, characteristic of the Eastern Greek Orthodox Church, Christos Aneste, Christ 
is risen. Christos, Aneste. Back came the deafening roar. Alethos, Aneste. Truly, he is risen. That was the response of a packed house after hearing one trying to discredit the whole thing. You see, the question is, hope isn't hope, a hope, a hope, or a wish. As Paul said, there's three things that remain that are critical to our life. Faith, hope, love. Faith is what we trust. Love is how we manifest it. But hope is what gets you up in the morning. Hope is what motivates us to have faith and to love. We all trust somebody. We all placed our hope somewhere. Every single one of us. But you see, your hope is in the resurrected Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one who ever said, because I live, you shall live also. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. We used to translate mansions. And then we all fought over what size of mansion we're going to get. So he just, the translation is simply, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. All the things you go through, all the things that you're motivated to do, the good things, all the things that are wrong, that someday could be made right, all has to do with your hope in Jesus Christ. And isn't it just good news and some reason to celebrate that the one that you've placed your hope in, that tomb's empty. That tomb's empty. And while people try to justify and locate where the body might be after 2,000 years, we know where the body is. The glorified body of Jesus Christ is the one making the very promise to us. So as we close this morning, I want to ask you, where do you place your hope? And, and I know this sounds a little university, and I'm sorry, not really. But I do get so sick and tired of people thinking we Christians are idiots. That we place our mind in some cottage cheese container. And yet we love God with all our heart, our soul, and all our what? All our mind. And that's why in Romans 1.4, Paul says, And God has given the resurrection as evidence that Jesus Christ is his son. And the sacrifice the Father gave by pouring his judgment for our sin on his son on that cross. The proof of the whole thing is God raised him from the dead and that tomb is empty and that's proven in history. You don't have to sacrifice your IQ, but you gotta be, have a heart that's open to the truth. So how long? How long will you deny that you have turned your back on your creator? You've treated the one who loves and created you with absolute indifference. You don't care if he's there or not. And you don't really care what he has to say. You do understand that the purest form of hatred is indifference. And yet God so loved the world, he provided a way back. That's what the cross is all about. That's what his resurrection was all about. Whosoever believeth in him 
should not what? But have everlasting life. Be with him. For I live, he says, you live also. Or my prayer is that you have you received your hope in Jesus Christ. That's between you and the Heavenly Father. For the rest of us, would you like to uh, close the service speaking a little Greek this morning? Leader says, you guys, gee whiz. At least the front row is almost filled. Okay, leader says, Christos, Aneste. Christos, Christ, Aneste, has risen. And then those who agree and affirm it, you don't say amen. That's too easy. That's Baptist. <laughs> you respond with alethos, truly, aneste. So let's try it two or three times. Christos, aneste. Christos, aneste. Christos, Aneste. Amen, amen. And God bless you, because I was raised Baptist. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.